Good evening, welcome everybody. Um, our speaker today is Clayton Lovington of KCL, and he's going to give us a paper on the Russellian retreat. So I want to thank you for the invitation, and I want to thank everyone for coming tonight. Um, so this is a paper on epistemic normativity. I'm going to defend a view that is sort of new to me, although it's defended by others. There's a commonly held view about the relationship between belief and truth, which is that the one aims at the other. Now, this talk of the aim of belief is, is metaphorical, and one way of understanding the metaphor is in normative terms. If your beliefs don't fit the facts, they're defective. They shouldn't be like that, and you're not supposed to have beliefs like that. Now, I haven't said much, but suppose everything I've said thus far is true. Is it important? Well, some epistemologists think that it's very important. The dominant view in current epistemology seems to be that the fundamental epistemic norm is a truth norm. And this norm grounds all of the other epistemic norms and explains why epistemic assessment has the concerns that it does. This truth-first approach to epistemic normativity is undeniably attractive. It, it seems plausible that a belief is correct only if it's true, and it also seems like the relevant notion of correctness is a normative one. It also seems rather plausible that it's not a brute fact that epistemic assessment is going to be concerned with facts about your evidence or the way you reason. And Michael Lynch puts it this way, we take it to be correct to believe what is based on evidence because beliefs based on evidence are likely to be true. And thus the value of truth is more basic than the value of believing what's based on evidence. The trouble with the truth first approach isn't that it commits you to lots of false things or prevents you from saying lots of true things. The problem is that it's wrong about one important thing. If the correct approach to epistemic normativity started with the idea that the fundamental epistemic norm had to do with truth, then it seems we might be able to say everything we want to say about epistemic normativity without ever saying anything at all about knowledge. And although the view isn't universally held, it is widely thought that knowledge has no deontic significance. There's no duty to know and no duty to refrain from believing what you don't know. So Richard Foley, for example, has long defended the view that there are just two fundamental questions in epistemology and they should be approached separately. One has to do with what we ought to believe, that's the normative question, and the other has to do with what we can know, and that's the knowledge question, and so the non-normative question. He thinks the failure of the Cartesian project shows us that these two questions ought to be kept apart. Since there's no method or procedure that we can use that's guaranteed to provide us with knowledge, facts about what we can know tell us little, if anything, about what we should believe. And Crispin Wright once suggested that we could live with the concession that we don't know some of the things that we believe, provided that we can still say that we're justified in holding these beliefs. And this is the Russellian retreat that the paper takes its name from. It's a stance that Russell and Wright recommend. Uh, Russell recommended on the grounds that we have to settle for probability to feasibility and inconclusive justifications, and hence can't have knowledge. I think this is a mistake, and I think it's symptomatic of a failure to appreciate the normative significance of knowledge. I don't think any of us can take comfort in the thought that we're justified in holding our beliefs once we've been forced to concede that we shouldn't believe what we do, but I think this is just what the Russellian retreat amounts to. Okay, so this is part one. The truth first view says that the fundamental epistemic norm is a truth norm. Now, there are lots of ways of formulating the norm, uh, but I'm going to focus on just this one uh, on the handout. It's T. Uh, you should not believe P unless P is true. Now, so stated, the truth norm just states a prohibition. It tells you not to believe falsehoods, not that you should believe truths. So far as this norm is concerned, there might not be any positive epistemic duties to believe anything at all. Now, I think this is a virtue of this formulation. I don't think there are positive epistemic duties to believe. Uh, it also doesn't say whether it's permissible to believe anything at all. Now, I also think this is a virtue of the present formulation. I think it's plausible that you're permitted to believe anything you like, so long as you don't violate any epistemic norms in doing so. We don't need a norm to tell us what we may believe once we see to it that we've satisfied the norms governing belief. We know that we're in the clear. So I think, the tr I think T so formulated is a good place to start. We don't need anything more complicated. Now, critics have criticized truth-first approaches to epistemic normativity on the grounds that the truth norm is both too restrictive and too permissive. Those who claim that it's too restrictive think that there's just no obligation, whatever, to refrain from believing falsehoods. And those who think it's too permissive think there's a problem for the truth-first approach, which is that there must be more to meeting your epistemic obligations than simply fitting your beliefs to the facts. Now, I don't think there's much to the first objection. I'll 
explain why briefly, most of the discussion is going to focus on the second objection. Now, some people find both objections compelling. They tend to embrace a kind of evidentialist view, according to which the fundamental epistemic norm has to do with relations of proper fit between your evidence and your beliefs. So Richard Feldman, for example, claims that things are not going terribly well for you if you rationally believe lots of truths. And of course, he's right about that. It would be a mistake, however, I think, to adopt his reductive approach to epistemic normativity and hold that the only normatively significant relations hold between your beliefs and your evidence for them. I won't discuss this view in detail here, but I'll just briefly explain why I think we can set it aside and focus on something else. So I think the first problem has to do with the having relation, the relation between you and your evidence. I think this relation has to be understood in normative terms. If you have something as part of your evidence, you have the right to rely on it as evidence. And these rights don't always arise from relations of proper fit between your evidence and your beliefs. So whether you acquire a piece of evidence non-inferentially depends upon whether you're properly related to the facts and your evidence doesn't stand you in that proper relation. The second problem has to do with support relations. So I would argue that evidence consists of facts or true propositions and only those facts or true propositions that you believe. In rejecting the truth norm, the evidentialist has to accept on the handout this evidential norm that I've labeled E, but they have to reject a second norm as spurious, the one that I have on the handout as H. And the reason they have to reject H is that evidence consists of facts or true propositions not falsehoods. If you can meet your epistemic obligations whilst violating the truth norm, you can meet your epistemic obligations whilst violating H. That means that H isn't a genuine epistemic norm if the truth norm isn't a genuine norm. And by rejecting that norm H, where H stands for having, the evidentialist has to say that the normative standing of your beliefs depends upon the support it receives, but not upon whether it can provide support of its own. And I think this is a very odd idea. So justification is typically thought to be closed under known entailment. So long as you justify the beliefs and proposition, you have sufficient justification to believe its known consequences. And if you don't have sufficient justification to believe the known consequences, you didn't have the right to believe the thing in the first place. And this closure principle doesn't sit terribly well with the idea that the normative standing of a belief is, in, is determined entirely by what supports it, but doesn't at all depend upon whether it can lend support of its own. And so an example I think will show this. So standing at the stop, Audrey seems to remember that the buses don't run past 7, and her watch tells her that it's 7.45. She very cleverly works out that there won't be a bus. Now, there are two ways of filling out the details of the case. Here's one. On the basis of mountains of evidence, she falsely believes the buses don't run past 7. She's long since forgotten what those reasons were, but they were good enough, according to the evidentialist view. The positive standing of her belief can persist even when she's forgotten her original grounds, so let's suppose that that happened. Since she allegedly, according to the evidentialist, justifiably believes now the bus doesn't run past 7 and knows that it's 7.45, the closer principle says she has sufficient justification to believe that there won't be a bus until tomorrow, and she incompetently infers this. Now, surely she doesn't now believe for sufficient evidence that the bus won't come again until tomorrow. Neither the fact she believes nor the fact that she seems to recall is among her reasons for believing the bus won't come again until tomorrow. While these facts are known to her, they can't explain the normative standing of her belief that the bus won't come until tomorrow because she doesn't believe for these reasons. And these reasons aren't sufficient on their own anyway. So what Audrey takes to be a reason is that the bus doesn't run after seven and that's not a reason to believe anything at all. Now we could have filled out the details of the case differently. We could say that Audrey remembers and she knowingly judges the bus won't come again until tomorrow. In this version of the story, she does have adequate reason to believe that the bus won't come again tomorrow. It's that, as she remembers, the bus doesn't run past seven. We can retain closure and do justice to our intuitions about the possibility of the persistence of normative standing across time if we insist the normative standing of a belief depends upon whether it provides support and not simply upon the support that it was once provided. Of course, if we do this, we'd have to accept this norm on the handout H, but if we accept that, we have to accept T. The trouble with the truth norm can't be that it's too demanding if there's no demanding that there is a norm like this that governs belief. I think the more pressing problem for the truth first approach is not that it's too demanding, but that it's too permissive. There's more to meeting your epistemic obligations than simply fitting your beliefs to the facts, and advocates of the truth first approach have to explain 
how this could be. So I just want to mention a couple of the explanatory challenges that I think the truth-first approach should try to address, and that defenders of this approach have tried to address, and I think it's their failure to address these properly that provides motivation uh, for an alternative. So the first challenge just has to do with the normative significance of evidence. The trouble with the evidentialist project wasn't the idea that evidence matters, but the idea that evidence matters to the exclusion of everything else. You can't meet your epistemic obligations unless you have adequate reasons for your beliefs. Moreover, you haven't met them unless you believe for good reasons. So Audrey might believe that her father wasn't involved in what happened at the mill because she just can't bear the thought that, that was something he'd do. But if her belief in her father's innocence isn't based on good reasons, it doesn't matter that she happens to have good reasons available to her. She hasn't met her obligations unless she puts the things together in the right way and believes for good reasons. Finally, only considerations that bear on the truth of what you believe can be reasons to believe. The truth norm is formulated as a prohibition against believing falsehoods. The truth first approach has to explain why epistemic assessment has the inward looking focus that it does. Why should it be concerned with the relations between good reasons to believe and the reasons for which you believe? Now the second set of explanatory challenges has to do with understanding relations between two kinds of epistemic norm. So some epistemic norms are formulated in such a way that they apply directly to beliefs. For example, the truth norm says not to believe falsehoods, and the evidential norm says not to believe without sufficient evidence. But not all epistemic norms are this way. Some epistemic norms have to do with theoretical reasoning or dogmatic deliberation, and these would be norms that tell us not to treat certain considerations as reasons or prohibit certain kinds of inferential transitions. So to introduce some terminology, we could distinguish between dogmatic norms and deliberative norms. Now, there appears to be uh, some consensus that the normative standing of a belief depends, in part, upon whether you've conformed to deliberative norms in coming to believe. If the truth norm truly is the fundamental epistemic norm, the truth-first approach takes the fundamental epistemic norm to be a dogmatic norm. And since we can conform to this norm however our beliefs are formed, it's not obvious how the advocates of this truth-first approach can account for the normativity of deliberative norms. So if you violate some deliberative norm in forming your beliefs, the standard line is you failed to meet your epistemic obligations. But if what matters fundamentally is the fit between belief and fact, why should facts about how you try to fit your beliefs to the facts have any further normative significance? Okay, section two. Now given just the resources of the truth account, how can advocates of this approach account for the fact that epistemic assessment has the inward looking focus that it does? Now one place to look might be Nishi Shah's defense of evidentialism. As he sees it, the fact that belief is governed by the truth norm explains why only considerations that bear on the truth of what we believe can constitute a reason to believe. And if he's right, this might explain why epistemic assessment is concerned with whether your beliefs are based on adequate evidence and so account for its inward looking focus. The starting point for his argument that only evidence can constitute a reason to believe is the idea that those who grasp the concept of belief grasp that it's governed by the truth norm. Those who grasp the concept of belief understand the truth norm captures the standard of correctness for belief. So if dogmatic deliberation is framed by the question whether to believe P, an individual who engages in such deliberation will grasp that only truth-related considerations can have any bearing upon whether to believe. And for this reason, Shaw says, only such considerations can figure in dogmatic deliberation. And here he appeals to an idea of Williams's. Nothing can be a reason for you to X unless it can figure in reasoning that disposes you to do so. That's almost a quote. He uses phi's, but I use an X. Every part of this explanation is, I think, controversial, but let's grant each of the assumptions for the purposes of this discussion. Shaw's argument suggests that certain kinds of considerations can't constitute reasons for belief, but it doesn't seem to lend any support to the idea that you need good evidence for your beliefs to meet your epistemic obligations. <coughs> so if Audrey comes to believe correctly that her father couldn't have started that fire on the basis of wishful thinking, it's not clear the truth first approach, uh, it's not clear on the truth first approach what epistemic wrong she's committed. She doesn't violate the truth norm and she didn't deliberate from any non-evidential reasons. So if the argument can't vindicate that evidential norm, then we don't have an explanation as to why epistemic assessment is concerned with your evidence or how you've handled it. Now, someone could say that Shaw's argument shows that there are deliberative epistemic norms that require us to exclude practical considerations 
from doxastic deliberation. And it might seem that it's a short step from this to the further claim that factors unrelated to the truth of your beliefs shouldn't influence your beliefs. But even this doesn't seem to follow. If they show anything, Shaw's arguments seem to show that certain kinds of considerations cannot figure in doxastic deliberation and so cannot constitute reasons to believe. To derive any normative conclusions from this about what the right to believe requires, for example, that it requires reasoning from considerations that bear on the truth of what to believe, we need a further assumption that the right to believe depends upon whether your beliefs were formed in response to adequate reasons. Now, that is a very plausible assumption. I'm not questioning it, but it doesn't receive any support from Shaw's argument. So let's try a different tack. In the course of addressing a worry that the truth norm is too objective to be a genuine norm, various writers have proposed that there are also subjective norms that have to do with evidence and rationality. So Wedgwood, for example, distinguishes between different readings of ought. On an objective reading, you ought not believe P is true if P is false. On another, you ought not believe P is true if it would not be rational for you to believe P. If Wedgwood is right and is, is right that it's rational to believe P only if it makes sense for someone in your position to believe P, given the aim of believing what's true, and what makes sense for you to believe depends upon your evidence, then we seem to have the makings of a truth-first vindication of the evidential norm. Now, I see one problem with this approach, which is that if it's an attempt to motivate the evidential norm, it's not at all clear what we've accepted in accepting that there's a sense in which you ought to conform to the evidential norm. Does this view say that you ought, in just some purely subjective sense, believe only with evidence, but may objectively believe without it? If that's the view, then I think the view must be mistaken. Coop thought that Audrey's father was responsible for what happened at the mill, but he started to have some doubts. And asking himself whether he should think that Audrey's father was responsible, it seems there's one and only one question he has in mind. He wants to know whether he ought really believe that Audrey's father is involved. And now we have three readings of ought, an objective reading, a subjective reading, and the sense of ought that the conscientious and reflective subject has in mind. Now, it seems to me that Audrey has two perfectly good ways of showing that Coop ought really not believe that her father was responsible for what happened. She might show that Coop couldn't have any evidence of her father's involvement, in which case I think he really should not believe that her father was involved because he should not subjectively believe her father was involved. Or she might show that Coop ought really not believe her father was responsible by showing that he was not at all involved. He should really not believe that her father was involved because he should objectively not believe. Introducing these different senses of ought doesn't explain why overall epistemic obligation depends upon both objective and subjective conditions. We need also to explain how overall obligation depends upon both sorts of conditions to understand the relevance of these different readings of the epistemic ought. Now, I suppose that someone could argue that these different senses of ought should be introduced to explain simply why it appears that objective and subjective conditions both work together to determine overall obligation. Someone could then argue that the challenge to explain how both sorts of factors work together to determine overall obligation is just mistaken. When it comes to what you should objectively believe, truth is all that matters. To further motivate the idea that there must be more to meeting your epistemic obligations than simply believing what's true, I think the case of Morian absurdities is helpful. There doesn't seem to be any sense in which someone believes what she ought or as she ought if she believes propositions like this, Audrey's father was involved, but I have no reason to think that he was. Audrey's father set the fire, but I don't know that he did. It would seem that belief in either of these, if possible, must surely be defective regardless of whether the propositions believed are true. I think the right tack for the truth-first approach to take is to explain why there's a gap between believing what's true and meeting your objective epistemic obligations, not explain away the appearance of such a gap. Now, Boghossian thinks that there are subjective obligations associated with the objective obligation to conform to the truth norm. He seems to think that there is a general connection between norms that aren't transparent and derivative norms that can be followed directly. So he says, traders on the stock market are attempting to comply with the rule, buy low, sell high, but there's no direct way to recognize when a stock's price is low. So traders follow certain other rules as a means of attempting to comply with the non-transparent rule that truly captures the aim of their trading activity. Just so, I think, with the objective norm, 
that one ought to believe only what's true. Once again, this is a rule that can't be followed directly, but one that can be followed by following certain other rules, the so-called norms of rational belief. For example, that we ought to believe that which is supported by the evidence and not believe that which has no support. But just as before, our story would be incomplete if we left out the fact that our following these rules is a means of following the norm that we ought to believe only what's true. All of these norms are grounded in the objective norm of truth. So is this more promising? Well, even if we can't determine directly whether we conform to the truth norm, and so have to try to do so indirectly by assessing the evidence, it's not clear what right Boghossian has at this point to say there are additional norms that govern the means we use when we try to conform to the truth norm. It might be true that whenever you ought to X, you ought to adopt the means necessary for so doing. But the situation we're considering isn't one in which conforming to an additional norm is necessary as a means to conforming to the truth norm. You can believe what's true without believing for any good reason at all. I don't think Boghossian's rationale for recognizing an evidential norm is simply that we need to follow the evidence in order to believe the truth. After all, we know that it's possible to believe truths without believing on the basis of any evidence at all. Sometimes good things happen for bad thinkers. Now, if I had to hazard a guess, I, I think that the reason he thinks there are norms that govern the means we use to conform to the truth norm that's grounded in the truth norm is because he thinks that norms are the kinds of things that should be followed. There's more to following a norm than simply conforming to it, say, by luck. If there are additional steps that need to be taken to follow a norm, and that norm has non-transparent application conditions, and norms are the sorts of things that ought to be followed, then there will be normative constraints on the means we adopt to conform to the norm. And if this is right, this should vindicate the evidential norm and explain why there should be deliberative epistemic norms. So section three. This, then, is the proposal I want to consider. The fundamental norm is a dogmatic norm, the truth norm. The norm's status as a fundamental norm doesn't turn on whether there are other epistemic norms. It turns upon whether its authority derives from a more fundamental epistemic norm. Thus, advocates of the truth-first approach don't have to deny that there are additional epistemic <coughs> norms that have to do with evidence or dogmatic deliberation. This norm status as the fundamental epistemic norm implies that all of the other norms derive their authority from it. The substance or the content of the fundamental epistemic norm isn't supposed to explain on its own why there are these derivative epistemic norms. Part of the explanation has to do with the point of norms. Norms are the sorts of things that you're supposed to follow, and the reasons associated with them, the guiding reasons, are the sort of things that you should be guided by. Now, as Boghossian and Wedgwood both remind us, we can't follow the truth norm directly. To follow it, we need to reason. And to reason as we ought to reason, we have to reason in a way that enables us to follow the truth norm. So it's not surprising there are deliberative epistemic norms that tell us that there are ways we shouldn't reason and would tell us not to draw conclusions arrived at by means of defective deliberation. And as Shaw has argued, if we seek to conform to the truth norm, we can't try to settle the question whether P by deliberating on the basis of considerations that are just unrelated to the truth or falsity of P. So it's not surprising that the epistemic norms would require us to believe on the basis only of evidence. So everything would seem to hang together quite nicely if we combine the truth norm with a further claim about what norms are supposed to do and what their associated reasons require of us. So the question I want to take up in this section is whether this further claim about reasons and norms uh, and their associated demands is correct. So let me just contrast two ways of thinking about guiding reasons. These are the reasons that are associated with norms that apply to you and they make demands of you. So these are reasons in the sense of being demanding things. Um, according to one way of thinking about guiding reasons, guiding reasons should be thought of as guides. They are things that you should follow and be guided by. And to be guided by them, you have to be cognizant of them and they have to be operative. On this approach, guiding reasons typically demand something like compliance. A reason to X wants you to X out of consideration of this very reason or for that very reason. And any failure to do what the reasons requires constitutes a wrong. And so this account implies that it would be wrongful to say, believe without being guided by the reasons that bear on whether to believe. Thus, irrationally believing truths would be wrongful, just as rationally believing falsehoods would be. Okay, so contrast that with the second approach. Guiding reasons can be thought of as guidelines, and so far as they're concerned, guidelines just don't want to be crossed. You don't need to be cognizant of them. Reasons cannot be operative if you're not cognizant of them. And since they don't demand your attention, they don't demand any role in your deliberation. On this account, reasons typically demand nothing more 
than conformity, a reason to x wants you to x, and it's satisfied if and only if you x. Any failure to do what the reasons require is wrong. There are no wrongs without a failure to do what the reasons demand. And so on this account, all wrongs are failures of conformity. If this conformity account is combined with the truth-first approach, the distinction between believing what's right and right-believing is lost. Thus, it might seem the conformity account is implausibly weak. After all, it's widely thought that the evidence for P can be a reason to believe P. It's also widely thought that you're not in a position to judge the P if you don't appreciate the force of the reasons you have to believe. You shouldn't believe unless the reasons for which you believe are themselves good reasons to do so. And if this is so, it doesn't look like the mere conformity account can do justice to this idea. Now, the advocates of the truth-first approach might have their reasons for preferring the, for the compliance account to the conformity account. But the question is, are those reasons any good? I suppose if there were good reasons for thinking the truth norm was the fundamental epistemic norm, then that the compliance account would be quite attractive. After all, the account seems to explain various features of epistemic assessment that might otherwise seem puzzling. Unfortunately, it looks to me like the compliance account is deeply problematic. I don't think guiding reasons are supposed to guide us in the way that the account suggests. If the compliance account captures an important truth about guiding reasons and the kinds of things that they demand, then it would presumably tell us something important about guiding reasons of all sorts. And if the reason that epistemic assessment has the inward-looking character that it does is down to the fact that guiding reasons as such are supposed to guide us and we ought to be guided by them, then we ought to expect that practical assessment should also have this inward focus. Now, Judith Thompson attacks this idea in the course of attacking the doctrine of double effect. And she says, it's a very odd idea that a person's intentions would play a role in fixing what he may or may not do. And to convince us this is an odd idea, she says, suppose a pilot comes to us with a request for advice. See, we're at war with a villainous country called Bad, and my superiors have ordered me to drop some bombs at Placetown in Bad. Now there's a munitions factory at Placetown, but there's a children's hospital there too. Is it permissible for me to drop the bombs? And suppose we make the following reply. Well, it depends on what your intentions might be. If you'd be intending to destroy the munitions factory and thereby win the war, merely foreseeing though not intending the deaths of the children, then yes, you may drop them. But on the other hand, if you'd intend to destroy the children, then no, you may not drop. And she says, can anyone really think that the pilot should decide whether he may drop the bombs by looking inward for the intention with which he would be dropping them if he dropped them? Now, Thompson seems to be saying here that part of the absurdity of double effect reasoning is just the idea that it focuses us to look inward. And the problem I have with this example is that I can't take for granted that everyone in the audience thinks that double effect reasoning is absurd. Uh, I've tried, and it's never worked. So what I thought I would do in this section is try to give four arguments to show that there's something right about what Thompson has said, even if there's something right about double effect reasoning. Um, so I can't assume that we all share Thompson's intuitions, uh, although I think they're right. Um, but I'll give some arguments to back them up. W.D. Ross gave an argument against the deontic relevance of motive. Uh, that might be useful in attacking the compliance account. Now, his discussion focuses on the motive of duty, but nothing seems to turn on, on whether we focus on this motive or another. Now, he thinks the claim that your duty uh, is to return what you owe, let's say, from the motive of duty conflicts with the categoricity of moral reasons. Choice, he thinks, cannot pr produce a motive such as the motive of duty. You can only choose to perform an act of a certain type. Now, you might be able to cultivate certain motives over time and bring it about that you have the appropriate motive at a later time, but that seems to have no bearing on what your present obligation is and what it takes to fulfill it. Your present obligation is to return what you owe. And if you can do your duty without acting for an undefeated reason, then your duty isn't to act for an undefeated reason that demands that you return what you owe. Now, this surely must be a strike against the compliance account. I think there's a second objection to the compliance account. To comply with the reason to X, it has to be the reason for which you X. And for it to be the reason for which you X, you have to be cognizant of that reason, and that reason has to be operative. The reason can't be motivationally idle. Now, any failure to meet the demands that reasons place upon you renders your response or non-response wrongful. The response or non-response might not be wrongful, all things considered, but wrong to some extent. Now, a reason you're aware of might be motivationally idle. A reason that you're not aware of must be. So think of the reasons that you're not aware of. Those are reasons you can't follow. 
they can't be the reason for which you believe or do anything. And if what reasons demand is that you follow them, then it'd be wrong for you to fail to follow them even when you're non-culpably ignorant of them. If you're non-culpably ignorant of them, the wrong might be excused, but the thought is, is that there's a wrong to excuse, and I think that thought is itself wrong. The thought that there's a wrong to excuse or justify doesn't ring true. In fact, I think it rings false. I think there's a third objection to the compliance account. This one has to do with cases of overdetermination in which there are two perfectly adequate undefeated reasons to do the same thing. Coop has two reasons to kiss. One reason is romantic and the other has to do with the greater good. And Austin reminds us that if all the pleasures bodily are mental, the pleasures of mutual love are the most enduring and varied. They therefore contribute largely to swell the sum of the well-being. But though he approves of love, it was never contented or conceived by a sound orthodox utilitarian that the lover should kiss his mistress with an eye to the common weal. Now, if Coop kisses for romantic reasons and not because it serves the greater good, the action doesn't seem to be wrongful for it. If Coop hasn't failed to do what the reasons require, the reasons that lined up on the same side aren't disappointed if only one of them is operative. If the idle reasons don't demand compliance, reasons don't demand compliance. Their demands don't diminish simply because they're lined up along further reasons to do the very same thing. Now, someone could say, of course, it'd be overkill to act for all the reasons that apply to you. Why can't the compliance account say your duty is always to act for some undefeated reason or other as opposed to all the undefeated reasons that line up on the same side? My worry about this response is that it's, it's obscure what the rationale would be for such a principle. On the compliance account, the principle couldn't be grounded in the demands of any individual reason that apply to you because they each demand compliance. Of course, someone can offer a kind of instrumental justification on the principle on the grounds that if we always comply with some undefeated reason or other, we'll do a great job at conforming to the demands of undefeated reason. That's true, but I don't think the instrumental justification goes far enough. Audrey might be clever enough to work out that the reasons warranted her in attacking an old rival, and she might do so in order to settle an old score. If we want to explain why her actions were wrongful, we couldn't appeal to the instrumental principle to do that because she's clever enough to engage in wrongdoing under the cover of rightness. So if there's a thought here that there is a, an actual kind of wrongdoing here, the instrumental principle couldn't account for that. And there's a fourth and final objection to the compliance account. Um, think about reasons to render aid. You might have a reason to jump into the pond to pull a child to safety, and you might not be alone in having this reason. There could be a handful of people well-positioned to pull the child to safety. If you don't move to act quickly and someone else pulls the child to safety, there's nothing the reasons demanded from you that you fail to do. If reasons required compliance, why wouldn't they require you to be moved to act? Upon seeing someone else start to swim to the child, it's not as if you have reasons to jump in and not swim them. It's hard to reconcile the observation that reason is indifferent to whether you're moved to act with the thought that reasons demanded that you're, demand that you were move to act out of respect for them. Now, someone might say that reasons only demand that somebody bring it about that the child is pulled free. I don't exactly see how this would help, but let's modify the example. Why should it matter that someone rather than something, if a passing turtle or log brings the child to safety, there's nothing left that the reasons required from you that you've left undone. An action is just one way amongst many of bringing about the state of affairs there's reason to bring about. And if something other than an action was adequate, it's hard to see what's left of the view that reasons demands include a demand that agency is exercised in some particular way. Their, their, their demands can be met without the exercise of any agency at all. Okay, so these were four objections to the idea that reasons demand compliance. Now they might not show that reasons demand conformity and nothing, sh nothing more, but they do suggest that the compliance account overgenerates demands. Now, if reasons don't demand compliance, then it's just not true that we ought to be guided by them. We shouldn't expect that there should invariably be an intimate connection between the norms governing the reasoning that leads us to believe or to act and the norms governing the beliefs and actions themselves. It should not be surprising, as Thompson notes, that normative appraisal of action is outward looking and focuses on whether the agent's actions fit the situation, doesn't look back in to, see, to look at the agent's intentions. The truth first approach tries to get normative assessment of an individual's reasons and reasoning into the picture by arguing that reasons by their very nature demand a role in our reasoning, but I think this picture is just mistaken. Reason only has work to do when you're in danger of acting against reasons or violating a norm. 
Sometimes you just get lucky and there's no reason for you to worry about violating a norm. And when that happens, reason doesn't have to remind you about the guidelines or help you steer between them. In doing nothing, it did everything that it needed to do. And if this is right, we might ask what role, if any, does reason and reasoning play in helping you do what the reasons and norms would have you do? It plays a facilitating role. It gets you back in line if you need to get back in line. In light of this, then, I think it's striking that epistemic appraisal does focus on the relation between explanatory and guiding reasons. If we reject the compliance account, though, we should be puzzled as to why this is. If it doesn't matter in the practical case whether the reasons for which you act are among the good undefeated reasons to so act, then it's just very, very, very surprising that epistemic assessment is concerned with the relation between guiding and explanatory reasons. It's very surprising that it's an epistemic wrong that there's a gap between explanatory and guiding reasons when you come to believe. So here's an explanation as to why epistemic assessment differs from practical assessment in terms of its inward-looking character. Epistemic assessment is concerned with the relation between guiding and explanatory reasons because truth is just not the fundamental norm of belief. Knowledge is. And so on the handout, this is the knowledge norm uh, K. Did I put that down? Hopefully. Um, the knowledge norm K just says you should not believe P unless you know that P is true. To conform to the knowledge norm, not comply but conform, you have to, you have to believe only what you know. And whether you know depends upon the reasons, whether the reasons for which you believe are among the genuine reasons there are to believe. That's why epistemic assessment is concerned with the relation between explanatory and guiding reasons. The content of the fundamental epistemic norm explains why this should be, not some further assumption about what norms demand from us and what the reasons associated with them demand from us. We shouldn't try to explain this in terms of some false claims about what norms are supposed to do or what reasons require. Now, there are two ways to try to resist this argument for the knowledge norm. The first is to argue that I've overlooked some important asymmetry. Someone might say that the demands of practical and epistemic reasons just differ. Maybe practical reasons don't demand compliance, but maybe for some reason epistemic reasons do. The second strategy for resisting the argument is to grant that the compliance account overgenerates demands, but offers some intermediary account that it could explain the inward-looking character of epistemic assessment. Okay, so let's take these responses in order. I don't think the first response could do because the cases that undermine the compliance account of the demands of practical reasons can be modified to undermine the compliance account of epistemic reasons. So Ross thought the compliance account, although he didn't put it in these terms, conflicted with the categoricity of practical reasons, and I think there's a similar conflict in the epistemic case. So there's presently a debate about whether it's permissible to believe lottery propositions. Uh, I say that it isn't, and others disagree. Now, they have their reasons, and they aren't terrible reasons, but let's just suppose that they're wrong. Coop happens to be one of those people who thinks you can have sufficient grounds for believing lottery propositions, and let's suppose he has good grounds for this mistaken epistemological view. He holds a ticket for a drawing that took place last night, and he doesn't know what the results were. He has evidence for his belief, but he still shouldn't hold his belief. He ought to rid of himself of this belief, and thus there's a decisive reason for him to do so. Now this reason, which he is completely ignorant of, cannot play any sort of guiding role at all. To be guided by it, he would have to be cognizant of it and moved by it. And to be cognizant of it, it seems, he would have to believe correctly that there was such a reason. To believe what he ought about this reason, this further belief would have to be reasonable in light of the evidence, but it couldn't be. He's in the grips of a false theory that's supported by good reasons that misled him. Now, maybe there's just no sound root of reasoning that would show him that he has decisive reason to suspend judgment on lottery propositions. If so, then it seems we have a situation in which the truth account should say that he shouldn't take himself to have decisive reason to get rid of his belief, and he should get rid of his belief. It's unfortunate that there's no good root of reasoning available to him that would show him that he ought to rid himself of his lottery belief, but that's just what duty requires. The categoricity of the evidential norm that enjoins us not to believe lottery propositions seems to be at odd with the idea that the reasons associated with this norm ought to guide us. All we need to do to conform to the evidential norm is not believe the lottery proposition. We don't have to stop believing for the right reason, i.e. an appreciation of the evidential norm and its application to the case of lottery propositions. Now, someone might object to the use of this sort of case because the guiding reason at issue is not a piece of evidence. 
I want the case to tell us something important about epistemic reasons, but the relevant reason is not a piece of evidence, and some authors seem to think that all epistemic reasons are just pieces of evidence. As Raz puts it, epistemic reasons are reasons for believing in a proposition through being facts that are part of the case for belief in its truth, and any reason that's a reason against believing something is a reason for believing its negation. Now, the reason I've just discussed doesn't act like this. The fact that you don't have sufficient evidence to believe a lottery proposition is a reason not to believe, but it isn't evidence for the proposition's negation. And because my reason doesn't play by these rules, one might ask, what right do I have to claim that it's an epistemic reason? The fact that you don't have enough evidence or the right kind of evidence to believe seems to explain why you shouldn't believe. So I'm calling it an epistemic reason because I'm following Razin saying that whenever one ought or ought not X, there are reasons that explain why this should be. I don't see how pieces of evidence could play this explanatory role. Someone might say that my reason is non-standard because it isn't a reason that could be followed in reasoning, but I don't think that's right either. You cannot believe a proposition or its negation on the basis of the fact that there's not sufficient evidence, but you can certainly suspend judgment for this reason, and that's the right kind of reason for doing so. When there are epistemic obligations to suspend, there are reasons that we need to explain why suspension is mandatory. And I don't think evidence is terribly well suited for this role. Once we recognize that epistemic reasons aren't limited to just more pieces of evidence, their categoricity causes trouble for the thought that our duty is to be guided by the epistemic reasons that apply to us. Okay. Remember that one objection to the compliance account, this is a second objection to the compliance account of episode reasons. Remember that one objection to this account had to do with ignorance of the reasons. If you're ignorant of some reason, you can't be moved by it. And if reasons require compliance, you can't comply with reasons you're ignorant of. If any failure to meet the demands of a reason is wrong, and there's no wrong here to excuse or justify, then reasons don't demand compliance. So consider the proposition that God is a property. Having considered it now, you might come to reject it. Now, I don't know what your grounds are, but maybe they're good. I suspect that they are. There was a discussion of this online a few years ago, and there was a contest to, d to find the best argument against this proposition. Um, now, if you believed on the basis of any of the many sound arguments against this proposition, there's probably nothing wrong with your belief. The chances are good, though, that you're not moved to disbelieve by some of the arguments considered there, although many of them provided you good reasons to disbelieve. There's nothing wrong with your beliefs simply by virtue of the fact that there were good reasons that weren't operative, so long as there were some that were. You only need to be moved by one good reason. Another objection had to do with overdetermination. You read the first argument in the discussion thread, you consider the steps and the reasoning, the argument structure, you find it convincing. If you believe for the reasons the argument provided without believing for others that other arguments provided, where you're aware of those arguments, there's nothing wrong with your belief but there are epistemic reasons that you haven't complied with. Finally, here's the epistemic analog of the fourth and final objection. When your memory is in good working order, you retain lots of beliefs, but when your forgettery is operative, you lose lots of beliefs. When you believe something you shouldn't, you can lose the belief by exposing that belief to reasons and revising your beliefs accordingly. You can reprogram yourself. You can also lose beliefs by forgetting. So if you believe something on the basis of spurious reasons and then simply lost the belief through forgetting, there's no failure on your part to respond to the epistemic reasons that spoke against believing. If so, they didn't demand compliance. Sometimes leaks are as good as revisions. The compliance account isn't right about practical reasons or epistemic reasons. So if we're stuck with the conformity account, the truth-first approach must be sunk. At this point, someone might argue that the conformity account is implausibly weak and urges to adopt a kind of compromise view. The conformity account might reject the idea that your duty is to act for right reasons, but it wrongly rejects the idea that your duty might, to be, might be to refrain from acting on sufficiently bad reasons. So there are there's skepticism uh, with regard to the idea that one's duty might be to act on a certain kind of reason but there are examples that seem to make compelling the idea that acting on certain kinds of reasons could by itself constitute a kind of wrong. So there could be, as it were, no, no obligation to believe for the right reasons, but perhaps obligations to not be moved by the wrong reasons. Uh, and I don't know how, how convincing people find these examples, right? But so not shaking someone's hand from a racist motive might make the otherwise permissible decision not to shake an extended hand impermissible. 
practicing one's tuba just to annoy one's neighbors, even though it's within one's rights to do it, might make the tuba practicing wrongful, although otherwise it might not be. I'm not quite sure what to make of these examples, but some people find them persuasive. And if you find them persuasive, then you might think the conformity account is too weak to register the thought that something is, there's something wrongful about the action that's made wrongful simply by virtue of the kinds of reasons that led the person to do it. Okay. So we might consider an intermediary view, the dual demands account. It says that reasons place upon us some conceptually related demands. They might demand conformity, and they might also demand that you don't fail to show due deference to their status as a reason. It seems rather plausible that if you have reasons not to harm someone, for example, then those reasons would also demand things like that you don't try to harm them or expose them to the risk of harm. And while the conformity account can't easily account for the idea that there's just one reason here grounded in one thing that has this complex demand, that's just what the dual demand account is supposed to do. So the dual demand account tells us that we have to focus on the individual's reasons because we need to know whether someone has shown due deference to a reason's status as a reason. Now, as I understand the account, you don't fail to show due deference to reasons unless you've shown a willingness to act or believe against them. Thus, you don't fail to show due deference by simply failing to take notice of a reason. You don't fail to show due deference by simply being moved by other reasons. What they object to is you're failing to conform to them or manifesting a willingness to go against them. Now, I think there's something attractive to this account, and if we combine this with the truth-first approach, we'd be able to explain why epistemic assessment has some kind of inward-looking character. It says we should look in to determine whether subjects have shown due deference to the reasons that apply to them. A subject that didn't believe on what they could take to be strong evidence would be showing a kind of willingness to violate the truth norm by failing to exercise due care. So the dual demand account nicely explains why we mustn't believe without evidence. Okay, now this seems like a step in the right direction, but I don't think it could possibly save the truth first approach. The dual demand account, after all, tells us to focus on the individual, individual's reasons for a specific reason. We're supposed to determine whether the subject has shown due deference to the reasons that apply to her. And while it explains what's wrong with believing falsehoods and what's wrong with believing irresponsibly, I don't think this quite captures what we look at when we want to look at the relation between explanatory and guiding reasons. The limitations of the account becomes clear when we think about cases of responsible fallacious reasoning and cases of fortuitous connection between belief and fact. There's a difference between believing responsibly and believing what the evidence supports, for example. So responsible believers might be ignorant of objective support relations that hold between believers' evidence and beliefs. And when there's this gap, a careful student who's misinformed about logical rules, for example, might show due deference to the truth norm and might end up believing truths, but would fail to believe as she should. Or we might consider a Roman physician who's read all the peer-reviewed literature that there might be on the connection between left-handedness and uh, being sinister. So suppose she believes on the evidence and quite correctly that a left-handed child is sinister. While her belief is based on evidence and true, the evidence leads to the truth only by accident. Now, I think she shouldn't hold this belief, but the truth account can't register that there's anything wrong with it. So I think the dual demands account is simply too weak to help in these kinds of cases. And we can continue to invent new compromises. We can come up with a fourth or a fifth view about what reasons demand that sits somewhere in between two views that you might be sort of attracted to. But I think the point we can't get away from is a simple one, and it's on the handout. It is not a kind of wrong to act for something that's no reason at all to so act. It is a kind of wrong to believe for something that is not at all a reason to believe. And I take that to be an asymmetry that we want to understand, but I don't think we can understand what, the, I don't think we can understand that asymmetry just by thinking about the kinds of things that reasons are and the kinds of things that norms are, because if we're trying to appeal to general features of reasons and norms, we would expect symmetry. Okay, now, uh, let me then just close with a, a couple of remarks about uh, the, the truth-first versus knowledge-first approach. To remind us that we value the truth, uh, as if we need a reminding, Michael Lynch, who's an advocate of this truth-first approach to epistemic normativity, wheels out Nozick's experience machine. And he wants to remind us of the, the horrors of life in the machine, and he thinks that this is supposed to in turn remind us that we care about the truth. So he says, other things equal, I wouldn't trade my present life with all its up and ups and downs for a life lived permanently within a pleasure machine. 
neither would I wish to live in a fool's paradise where people just pretend to like and respect me. These examples and others like them show that we value something more than experience, even just pleasurable experience. We want certain realities behind those experiences, and thus we want certain propositions to be true. So he might be right that we care about the truth and right that cases like this remind us that this is so, but I think examples like this need to be treated with care. In showing us that the truth matters, they show us why the truth first approach is just fundamentally misguided. In Nozick's story, there are realities behind the experiences. And on his telling, the facts don't fit the appearances. And so there's a gap between appearance and reality. And that gap, it's important to remember, is not an essential feature of the case. We can get rid of the gap while maintaining a complete independence between appearance and reality. That's, after all, a common feature of Gettier cases and something we can build into Nozick's story if we choose to do so. So let's do that. Audrey's in the machine. Before stepping in, she hoped that her brother would graduate. And one morning, it seems to her that her brother is graduating. And we can tell the story Nozick's way. Her brother's dead. It seems to her that her brother is graduating because the machine's operators have set things up that way. A smile stretches across her face. Can the operator say that she's smiling for the reason that her brother is graduating? Can she say that Audrey's happy that her brother has finally earned his degree? I mean, not truthfully. He's dead. Now, we can tell the story Gettier's way. Her brother isn't dead. On the morning, it just so happens he's receiving his diploma. The operators have no idea that this is so. This is just a happy accident. Audrey's beliefs about her brother are correct, just as they appear to be, but they aren't tethered to reality in any way at all. Now, can the operator say that she's smiling for the reason that her brother is graduating? Can she say that Audrey is happy that her brother is graduating? No, not truthfully. The mere match between belief and fact doesn't put Audrey in a position to think, do, or feel anything in light of it. The realities are hidden behind her experiences and so unknown to her. The reason that life in the machine is horrible isn't the beliefs you form in the machine are all false. The reason that life in the machine is horrible is that you've lost contact with reality. The example shows there's a difference between having a true belief and being in touch with reality. It can be good to have the truth in view, but it doesn't do you much good if it's just out there. So I've been pressed to explain why we should think that there is such a thing as a norm that governs belief. And when pressed, this is the kind of answer I've given. There are things that beliefs are supposed to do and a difference between the beliefs that can do what beliefs are supposed to do and those that can't. I say that the thing that beliefs are supposed to do is provide you with reasons, guiding reasons, so you can think what you should think, feel what you should feel, and do what you should do. And I think that these reasons consist of facts. Beliefs that don't fit the facts can't do what beliefs are supposed to do, and the truth account gets that right. But that's why it's not wrong to say that belief is governed by the truth norm. The reason it's wrong to say that belief is governed by the truth norm, and the reason, the, the reason it's wrong to say that it's the fundamental norm, is that true beliefs can't always do what beliefs are supposed to do. It's only when your beliefs constitute knowledge that they can provide you with reasons, and that's why knowledge, not truth, is the fundamental norm of belief. Okay.